0: You got your Bibles, open up <clears throat> to Revelation chapter 3. <clears throat> Tonight we're going to finish chapter 3 uh, looking at this final letter that Jesus writes to the seven churches in Asia, uh, this being the church in Laodicea. So before we read the passage, I want us to kind of look at the city of Laodicea as we have which each of the other um, churches and the cities that they were existing in. And we'll kind of see uh, what is going on in this city. uh, And parts of this will apply to um, the issues going on with this church. So Laodicea of these... um, of the cities in Asia that were Roman cities, uh, where Rome had taken over or conquered uh, parts of Asia, the cities that were in there, Laodicea—excuse Laodicea, me—was the wealthiest. It was located uh, at the center point of, uh, or the the cross section of two major trade routes, because of uh, some of the fertility of their fields. They had discovered this way to take sheep and breed uh, um, these black sheeps with, with this glossy wool uh, that was in much demand that helped add to their wealth. Because of their wealth, they had um, one of the, the biggest banking systems and wealthiest banking systems at this time. They were, uh, in Asia, uh, the most wealthy city in fact, what is, what is often uh, cited as a testament to their wealth was in AD 60, there was an um, earthquake that destroyed several of these cities. And most of them uh, would get the help of Rome uh, to financially help them rebuild their city. Laodicea was able to rebuild their city completely with no help from Rome on their own ability, on their own Wealth, So they were an incredibly wealthy city. Not only were they wealthy, uh, they had a medical school uh, that was known for working with eyes, especially with this um, saw, this, this mixture of, of dust that they would use to make into an ointment uh, that was supposed to be very beneficial. And it was a town that had roughly... Um, 7,500 Jewish males, so if you add children and uh, uh, women to that equation, uh, several thousand Jews have been transported into this area, so they had a large Jewish population. Also, where they were located, uh, their, their closest cities was to the north, about six miles. There was a city called Hierapolis, uh, and to the southeast, there was a city, uh, there's Colossae. We're Colossians, what we've been going through on Sunday mornings. Uh, that's where Colossae Colossi is located. And so that's going to come up in just a second as we begin to study some of these neighboring cities and this, the wealth of this city and why it's important for us to understand that. So let's read Revelation 3, 14 through 22. Then we'll pray and then we'll make our way through the passage. It says this, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments that you might clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see." Father God, we come before you now. God, I pray that as we study this passage, God, that you would speak through your word and through your Holy Spirit, God, louder than my voice ever could. Use this, God, to challenge us to examine our hearts, examine our lives, to see where our faithfulness lies and what we are trusting in. So In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. All right, so the first thing that we've seen in all of these letters, we start off with this kind of introduction of Jesus, where Jesus is introduced in some kind of descriptive format. Now, the first five letters, uh, Jesus used the, um, the, the descriptors that were given when John had his vision of Jesus back in chapter uh, 1. Uh, but now, the last book or last letter that we saw last week, and then this letter to Laodicea, He uses things that he had not used. He's kind of gone through all those. And and now he gives this descriptor that says, to the angel of the church of Laodicea, write. Here's the description. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now here's what these words mean. So when he says the words of the Amen, in the Old Testament and in uh, Jewish writings, Amen was a kind of that period onto something which is valid and binding. It's this um, kind of authoritative or kind of locked in idea. When Amen was added to, it says this is it. Uh, This is the period. This is the exclamation point. Uh, This kind of wraps everything up, binds it, and holds it together. Then he says, the faithful and true witness. This shows the trustworthiness of Christ, that he is faithful, that he is true, that the things that he proclaims is Jesus, the witness that stands among these seven lampstands. Jesus is the one who is speaking to these churches. Jesus is the one who is giving these messages. He is true. He is a faithful witness. He can be trusted and the beginning of God's creation. We talked about this when we were going through uh, Colossians, that this does not mean that Jesus was the very first created thing. This means that Jesus holds a position of authority over God's creation. Just as the firstborn child in the family was uh, to have the authority, was to have the, uh, the greater Uh, Benefit or the greater portion of the inheritance. Jesus as the firstborn. Once again, Jesus has always been. He has no beginning point, just like God the Father, just like God the Spirit. But He is the firstborn in the sense that He has authority over creation. And so when He throws all of these together, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation... We kind of see this picture of Jesus that, that's kind of like this, this exclamation point on all of the, the descriptors that we've seen of Jesus. He is the amen. He is the one that, that binds and holds all things together. This, uh, a letter is, there these letters are going out. Jesus is the one that is has Put his stamp on this. It's almost like putting His foot down and saying, This is it. This is authoritative. This is what I've said. And not only that, but he's that true witness that what he said can be trusted and what he said is good. So whether he is uh, praising people, whether he is bringing condemnation and reproof, whether he is exhorting people to change within these churches, what he said is solid. There's no point in questioning it. There's no point saying, well, was Jesus really right about this? Or maybe Jesus missed this point or this or that? No, this is Jesus laying out there very clearly that uh, he is the true witness and what he has said can be and should. Be trusted in the beginning of creation that he is authoritative. So, as Jesus speaks these or sends these letters out, he speaks to these churches. He speaks as the one who has authority, not just over the church, but over all of creation. So we get this final letter and this final descriptor of Jesus. It's kind of like this exclamation part, point on everything else, showing emphatically that what Jesus has said is good and can be trusted. So that's that introduction of Jesus as he kind of lays out these letters. And so we get into the charge against the church of Laodicea. Now, Laodicea does not have... We've seen in the majority of these letters, there is a a charge against them. Hey, here's something that you've done wrong, uh, but here's something that you do good. Uh, We'll flip those. It's usually here's what you do good, but here's what you do wrong. With Laodicea, we don't have that. We start off with the charge against them because he doesn't have anything that he says, hey, look, here's where you are... um, doing well at, here's where you are uh, excelling at, all we have is the, the, where he says, I know your works, and he kind of lays out a charge against them. So look at um, verses 15 through 17. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, growing up, this idea of hot and cold, I was always taught, and I was always told, and I don't know if you are, maybe you had better teachers or whatnot, but I was always told that hot and cold and lukewarm, or if you were hot, that meant that you loved Jesus. If you were cold, that meant that you were basically lost, and lukewarm meant that you were a Christian that was just kind of not doing what they were supposed to do. And so in this, Jesus is saying, I would rather you be hot or cold than lukewarm, that Jesus is saying, I would rather you be lost or just absolutely on fire for me, and, and I'd rather not you be in the middle. Now, the more that I've grown and matured, that doesn't necessarily make sense because, remember, all of these letters, they're written to churches. That means they're written, written to people who are believers. And I believe that it is God's desire, since it's God's will that all might come to know Him, or it's God's desire that all might come to know, to know Him in salvation, that, that God's desire is that we be saved even if we're struggling as Christians rather than being lost and being His enemy. So this is where kind of understanding the city and its location uh, comes into play. Now we said the two neighboring cities to uh, Laodicea was Hierapolis and Colossae. Heropolis, uh, being six miles to the north, was known for its, um, its warm springs. It was known for these uh, mineral-laden warm springs. It's this naturally hot water. And then to Colossae, 10 miles to the southeast, you had a, a, a city because of its closeness to rivers. It had these natural springs, these natural cold water that was meant for refreshing. So you had these hot waters that, that were meant for healing and these cold waters that were meant for refreshing. So I think there's probably two ways that we can look at this hot and cold and what it means. It could mean that because of Laodicea's location, Laodicea did not get its water from uh, a river or from these natural areas. They uh, were had to pump water uh, from a few miles away. They had this uh, uh, pumping system that would pump water up into the storage tanks and then pump it throughout the towns. And so you had Colossae with the cold water. You had uh, Hierapolis with the warm water, or the hot water, and then here kind of distance-wise, you had Laodicea with just this kind of naturally lukewarm water. And so Laodicea, just kind of looking at this graphically, is far from the source. Source of cold water which brings refreshment. Source of this hot water that's used in healing... The farther they are away from that, the farther they are from the source. And their water loses its value for refreshment or for healing. So, one way you can look at this is just kind of look at it geographically and say that because Laodicea is far from the sources of these beneficial waters, they have this lukewarm water that has the stuff has to be added to it, or it has to be heated up on its own, or it has to go through this purification process. And so the farther you get away from the source, the weaker or the more ineffective their water has become. The farther we get from the source of who God is, the farther we pull away from Him, the more ineffective we become as Christians. Now, as we look through the the rest of God or Jesus' charge against them, this kind of fits. Because we're going to see that they have begun to trust other things rather than God. They begin to trust their own self-sufficiency, trust what they can do on their own rather than trusting God. And it has impacted their ability as believers. It has made them ineffective as Christians to reach out. Another way I think that you can look at this to kind of uh, figure out what's going on it's just looking at the idea of this hot water which brings healing or is used in, in, in medical things, and this cooling water which is used for refreshing. And this lukewarm water which does really neither of those. And as believers, we are to be... Um, Taking out the gospel, we're to be living lives in such a way that we're making an impact on those who need spiritual healing, that we're to be encouraging those who are striving to walk with God or encouraging those who are struggling in their sin or encouraging those with the gospel who are lost and need salvation. And the fact that they are lukewarm means they are doing neither of those. Once again, it plays in through, into their ineffectiveness. So these both kind of get us to the same point. And I think they're both valid ways to approach the passage. But when Jesus says, I would rather you be hot or cold rather than lukewarm, I don't think it's a, necessarily a, a temperature or a thermometer to see uh, where they're at on some kind of spiritual scale. What Jesus is doing is he's making a statement on their effectiveness as believers. They're either far from the source, which makes them ineffective, or they've quit doing the things that they are called to do. They've quit doing the things that Christians are supposed to do, so therefore they are ineffective. But where this both leads us is to their ineffectiveness as believers, their ineffectiveness as a church. They're not doing the things that are, they are called to do. So here's the reason for their lukewarmness. We're giving it in uh, right after that in verse 16. I'm sorry, in verse um, 17. He says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. The reason for their lukewarmness is their self-sufficiency. Remember, Laodicea was a wealthy city. Laodicea was the wealthiest Roman city in the Asian provinces. Now, in most of the other churches, there was some kind of persecution that came along. In fact, I believe it was the last church that we looked at. It was... um, Philadelphia, I believe, where they talked about you being a a small church, or might have been Sardis, uh, but you were a small church and they were still having impact. But uh, we talked about how that persecution from those different trade guilds kind of impacted their ability to make money. It kind of impacted their ability to earn livings. Well, here in Laodicea, that's not the case for whatever reason. Maybe it's because there's banking more than the trade guilds. Maybe they could have been raising some of these uh, goats with the black, or not goats, the sheep with the black wool. But for whatever reason, uh, the church in Laodicea is not facing the external pressure in the same capacity that these other churches were. In fact, there's not even a mention of false teachers or false doctrine like there is in the other churches. Here, the problem comes from within. And because that city had great wealth, it had trickled down to the lives of these believers and they, in turn, had wealth. Now... Wealth in and of itself is not a bad thing. The Bible does not teach us that to be wealthy is evil or wrong or sinful. The Bible does teach us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, but that does not mean that being wealthy equates to being evil. But what these believers have done, what these Christians have done, because of their wealth, they have they have been blinded to their their true spiritual uh, uh, standing. They've been blinded to their true spiritual need. They look at themselves and they say, Look, I've got a nice family. I've got a nice house. I've got a nice car. I've got uh, plenty of money in the bank account. My business is doing well. My life is great. My life is good. And there is no suffering. And there is no uh, uh, persecution. And they look at themselves. And they look at their lives. And they take stock of everything And instead of looking to God and being thankful, instead of looking to God and thanking Him for His blessings, they look to themselves and they say, much like Nebuchadnezzar with the children that we talked about this morning, as he he looked out over his kingdom and he says, look what I have done. That's the same idea with these believers. They look at their wealth. They look at their prosperity. They look at the things that they have gathered to themselves. And they say, look at what we have done. We've got it. We are good enough. We are strong enough. We are enough in and of ourselves, by ourselves. And they've developed this attitude of, of pride. They've developed this attitude of self-sufficiency. They've developed this attitude that, hey, we don't need God. Yes, we go to church. Yes, we're Christians. Yes, we kind of do the whole worship thing. But it's kind of like there's this separation between, hey, God's over here. And the rest of my life, I take care of this. And I'm self-sufficient. And I don't need Need God for every aspect of my life. And they develop this self sufficiency where they say, Hey, I've got all of this stuff. I'm rich. I'm prospered. I need nothing. And as you look at this idea of self sufficiency and you say, Why is that such a bad thing? Because self sufficiency ultimately causes us to exalt ourselves. More than we exalt God, it causes us to trust ourselves, to trust our own ability, to trust our own ingenuity, to trust our own wealth, to trust our own, our own gifts, to trust our own goodness, to try to figure things out, to fix our life, to lead our life, rather than trusting God and trusting His plans and trusting His direction and trusting His wisdom. It builds a sense of pride that says, I'm good enough, that's ultimately going to lead them to say, Do I really need God? It's the same thing that happened to Lucifer. Lucifer, the archangel, who at one point was the, the one who uh, um, stood before God and, and basically he was the worship leader, he, he magnified the greatness and the brilliance of God across all of heaven. And then one day he said, I will arise and be like the most high God. One day he said, Why do I need this guy? I can do it on my own. Self sufficiency, pride. And it caused him to see that he, or it caused him to think, excuse me, caused him to think that he did not need God. He led a revolt against God. So here with this church that that Jesus says, whether you be hot or cold, or I would rather you be hot or cold, but you're lukewarm, I want to spit you out of my mouth. It's because they develop this attitude of of self-sufficiency that if it has not already, it is in the process of moving them to the point to say, you know what, how much do we really need Jesus? And that's what pride does to us. And so their pride and their self-sufficiency blinded them from their true state. Jesus says, um, For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. And then Jesus kind of pulls the curtain back and says, Here's who you really are. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Their, their pride has blinded them from their need. Their, their physical wealth, their physical prosperity has blinded them to what they really are, that they are, are wretched, that they are pitiable, that they are people who need mercy, that they are poor and blind and naked, that they are people who need someone to love them, who need someone to forgive them, who need someone to uh, to wrap them up and draw them to themselves and bring healing in their life. Now, Remember, these are people who are Christians, but because of their wealth, they have allowed that to become their God. They have moved so far away from God that instead of worshiping Him and trusting Him day in and day out, they are worshiping themselves and worshiping their possessions. They built up this pride and the self-sufficiency, and it has blinded them to their sinfulness. It has blinded them to their depravity. It has blinded them to their need that they desperately need Jesus, not just at the point of salvation, but every single day of their lives. And this pride has bubbled up and it has bubbled up. It has blinded their eyes so they don't see, they don't recognize their own sinfulness. They don't recognize their need for God. And they think that they are good enough on their own. Yes, Jesus got them in the door, but they'll take care of everything else. And they've lost sight that we are all sinners who desperately need to be forgiven day in and day out. They've lost sight of what John wrote wrote in 1 John where he talks about uh, anyone who says that they have no sin has made God out to be a liar. And they lie to themselves. They've lost sight of the fact that we, though we are saved, though we are the children of God, we still struggle every single day. We are still at war every single day with our flesh, with the old Adam, with the old man that lives within us who desires sin, who desires temptation. And they've allowed this sin to take control of their life. And it has moved their dependence. It has moved their worship. It has moved their focus away from who God is. So Jesus writes, I would rather you be hot or cold. I would rather you be doing something, but instead you have become ineffective as a church and you're losing your ability. You're losing your effectiveness. You are losing your, uh, your place as a church to do what you are called to do. And why? Why? It's because you've allowed wealth to become your God and you've allowed it to build up pride and you've allowed it to build up self-sufficiency and you've allowed it to cloud your need for God and you've tried to trust your own ingenuity and you're trusting your own abilities rather than crying out to God saying, God, we need you. So then in verses 18 through 20, we see Jesus' call to them to repentance. In verse 18, he says this, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Well, let's just stop there. We'll get to 19 in a second. There's three things that he kind of lays out here. Three things that he says that you need to come to me for. First is the gold refined by fire. First Peter 1 Peter 1.7 says this, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory. The goal that he is talking about there in this idea of repentance, in this idea of turning back to God, it's getting back to faith. It's getting back to trusting God. Don't trust yourself which uh, the, the possessions that you are building up are, are made of straw and wood and they would burn up in those fires. But trust in God who offers by faith this grace, who offers by faith this salvation, who offers by faith this relationship with Him. Turn back to your faith. Quit trusting in things that do not last. Quit trusting in things that do not save. Quit trusting in things, whether it's possessions, whether it's yourself, whether it's other people who cannot um, uh, sanctify you, who cannot work in your life, and trust in God. Turn back to that purified faith. Turn back and allow God to begin to purify your faith so that you trust Him more, that you see Him greater, that you you desire Him more and you understand your need before Him. So he says, I counsel you to buy from Me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Remember, this is a wealthy city. Jesus is saying that your wealth comes not from your bank account, but from your trust in God and being close to Him. Then He says, And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. So a couple of things about this. You've got the idea of white. That's the idea of of purity. That's the idea of that that which is clean. The Bible talks about how uh, God, through through Jesus Christ, He has wiped away our sins. That we were uh, red like scarlet. We have now been made white as snow. Uh, That there's this purification that comes through Jesus Christ. There's this purification that comes through trusting Him. And when He talks about that your shame might be hidden and your nakedness might not be seen... That takes us back to the story of Adam and Eve in the garden when they have sinned and when it said once they had, had sinned, once they had eaten of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, once they had eaten that fruit, they saw each other and instantly realized that they were naked and they were filled with shame. So they took those fig leaves and in their own ability and in their own power, they tried to, to sew them clothes, but it's clothes that would not last. It would never permanently hide their shame and their guilt because those leaves would wither up and those leaves would, would crumble away. And so it would have been a constant trying to um, work and work and work to cover up their shame and it would never happen. And so God took that animal and He killed that animal and He spilled that blood because without the, the shedding of blood there can be there there can be no forgiveness of sins. And He makes them clothes that will last and clothes that will hide their nakedness and clothes that will hide their shame. And so as Jesus talks about these white clothes uh, that will will hide our nakedness and hide our shame it's a direct tie back to that story and it's a direct tie to Jesus Christ it's a direct tie to when Paul talks about Jesus Christ being the one that exchanges his righteousness for our unrighteousness that that clothes us in his righteousness that clothes us in his perfection that clothes us in his glory and he takes our shame and he takes our guilt away from us and he hides us in his perfection, so that as God looks at us, he sees us through the righteousness of Jesus. It's a a reminder for them. Quit trusting in yourself. Quit trusting in your own goodness. You cannot be good enough to impress God. Don't trust in your goodness. Trust in God's goodness. And then, yes, live your life to honor Him and glorify Him. But don't try to impress God by your goodness. You might impress your neighbors by your wealth and your goodness and your morality, but you're not going to impress God. Trust in the righteousness of Jesus. So in this call to repentance, He calls them to remember their faith. He calls them to remember the righteousness of Christ. And then He says, And solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Sin blinds us. Sin. darkens our eyes so that we cannot see uh, the truth. Sin's goal is to get us from living in the light to living in darkness. And the more we engage in sin without repentance, without seeking forgiveness, without seeking to sanctify and, and live differently, the more we engage in sin, it's like a, a veil or a mask or glasses, sunglasses being put over our eyes that, that get darker and darker and darker. And blind us to truth, and blind us to right and wrong, and leave us stuck in, in the lies that Satan has been selling us, and that we have been buying. So he says, "Come to me. Let me give you this solve. Let me let me wipe away the blindness." There's stories of Jesus spitting on the ground and covering people's eyes and wiping it away so they can see. There's the story of, of Paul on the road to Damascus where he's blinded by the light. And once he gets to the city, the, the the scales fall off his eyes and he can see again. And it's this picture of what once was where you were blinded by falsehood, you were blinded by sin. Now you can see in Christ there is light. In Christ there is, there is understanding. In Christ there is, there is wisdom and Discernment. And so he calls them to to turn back to trusting in God, to trust in the righteousness of Jesus, and to allow him to to purify our hearts, purify our minds and our eyes, so that we can once again see what is good and see what is right and see what is true. And then he goes on and he says, verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and be with me. Now, this is not the... the the nicest letter. Uh, There's two letters. I don't remember off the top of my head which is the other city, but there's two letters where there's no, hey, here's what you're doing good. Here's what you need to work on. This is just a solid, here's what you're doing bad. In fact, Jesus kind of using some graphic language says, look, I would rather vomit you out of my mouth the way that you are. That's how ineffective you are as a church, as as a group of believers. Those are hard words to hear. Those are hard words to take in and yet Jesus tells them, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Discipline is never easy, discipline is never something easy to, to, to accept or even to go through. But this discipline that God is dwelling out, that God is doling out, that Jesus is, is laying out in this letter, these, these harsh words. Jesus says, this is done because I love you. I love you and I'm reproving you. Uh, so repent. The idea here is this reproval, this discipline is a, um, a sign of their salvation. He only reproves, he only disciplines those he loves. If I'm at Walmart and someone else's kids are acting up or being crazy or being loud or wild or disrespectful, I don't discipline them. The reason is they're not mine. They're not my kids. The only children that I discipline are my four children that I have authority over because they are mine. The fact that Jesus is disciplining them, the fact that Jesus says He only disciplines those He loves, means that yes, though they are in sin, yes, though they are far from God and ineffective in this moment, Jesus is calling them to repentance because He loves them. And this discipline is a sign of the genuineness of their salvation. It's a sign of the genuineness of their faith. He's not calling them to salvation. He is calling them to repentance. He's not saying, hey, look, you're really lost. He's saying, no, look, you're saved. You're just really far away from me. Understand that I'm going to do what I've got to do to get your attention, to draw me back, not because I hate you, but because I love you. And because I love you, I want what is best for you. And what is best for you is never sin. What is best for you is me. So because I'm disciplining you, don't think this means that I hate you or dis- I you, I am disciplining you because I love you and I want you back to myself. So he says, be zealous and repent. Turn back around. Turn back to following me. Turn back to trusting me. <clears throat> Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, a lot of times we use that verse when we're talking about salvation. But remember, in our context, we're not talking about salvation. Jesus is talking about repentance and the restoration of intimacy with His children. So there's two things I think we can pull from this. One, when we sin, yes, sin is bad. And yes, sin hurts the heart of God. But because God loves us, God will work to discipline us, to draw us back to Himself. And He stands at that door and He knocks, not not as a stranger wanting to come in for the first time, but as a father, but as as a Lord, as a friend wanting to come in and have relationship, to have fellowship with His children with His servant, with His friend. It's a picture of one not a stranger coming to know Him for the first time, but someone who knows Jesus, someone that knows Him. And the sin has caused a a divide in the fellowship. The relationship is still there, but the sin has caused a divide in the fellowship. And He says, look, I want to spend time with you. I want this fellowship. I want this closeness. I want this intimacy with you. I'm standing here. I'm knocking. All you have to do... repent of this self-sufficiency. Repent of this pride. Repent of this sin and open the door and the fellowship can be instantly restored. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to do all these things. You don't have to follow these ten steps or these, these seven prayers. You don't have to do all this stuff to earn me back. I'm standing at the door. I'm knocking. All you have to do is repent and fellowship can be instantaneously restored. Just repent of your sin and pursue this faith. Pursue the righteousness. Pursue the trusting in God that you had done at first. Repent and our relationship, our fellowship will be whole again. It is a beautiful picture of repentance. It's a beautiful picture of God saying, Look, though you have fallen away, know that I still love you. And then he closes with this in verse 21 and 22. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne... As I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The promise to those who conquer is a promise to reign with Christ. It's a promise to be with Him for eternity. In 2 Timothy 2.12, Paul wrote, If we endure, we will also reign with Him. It's a promise that Jesus or that God made that we are the joint heirs with Christ. It's a promise that once we get to Him, once we leave this world behind and we are with Him, that He gives us such privilege and such blessing, not because we've earned it, but because of Him. And it's a reminder to them that you might think that you're something in this world. Your wealth might make you think that you're more important than you really are. But understand, if you trust in me, if you find the wealth that comes in faith, not through money, but by having that, that faith that is refined by fire, that has more value than gold, that has more value than cash, that has more value than possessions. If you trust in me, understand the greatest stuff that this world could offer you. You could be the wealthiest man in the world, but what God offers you is a, choice, a chance to reign with Him, to be a joint heir with Christ, to sit on the throne with Christ. That is nothing compared to what this world can offer you. The world that can offer you anything, kings and thrones and dominions, yet to reign with Christ for eternity trumps every single bit of it. And so it's a, it's a reminder that, yes, this world, it might have some, sh- some, some sparkly, some shiny things that it can put in your face and say, hey, aren't I great? But what God offers is infinitely and eternally far greater than anything this world can offer. So as he writes this letter to the church of Laodicea, it's written to a church that has become ineffective because they've been trusting themselves. They've been trusting their wealth. They've been trusting their own sufficiency and ability. And they've kind of pushed God. They've kind of pushed Christ to the back burner. And they've said, yeah, Jesus got me in the door, but I can do everything else myself. And God writes and says, no. Jesus writes and says, no. You have to repent. And understand that I'm standing there knocking. My desire is I want you to repent. The reason I'm chastising you and reproving you is because I want you to repent. I'm standing here because I want to have fellowship and intimacy and closeness with you. Will you open the door? Will you repent? Will you turn back to me? We've got just a little bit of time left, so uh, we'll kind of go back to what we have been doing. We're going to give some time of silence. And in this time of silence, here's the two things that I want us to pray through. One, before we ever look at anybody else with Scripture, we always need to look internally at ourselves. I want us to examine our hearts, examine our lives. Pray and say, God... Is this in any capacity or in any realm of my life? Maybe it's it's not my whole life. Maybe it's in my marriage. Maybe it's in my work. Maybe it's in uh, how I treat others. I don't know. Maybe it's in how I spend my money. But is there any area where I'm trusting something else over you? Where I value something else over you? Then once we've done that work, once we've done or allowed God to do that work in our heart... Think of a friend, a neighbor, maybe someone who used to come to church here. Someone who claims to be a Christian, but they've kind of slipped off into this this self-sufficiency. They're trusting their own goodness or their own ability to to bring them uh, satisfaction and hope and strength. That they've kind of moved away from, from truly worshiping and following God and they begin to worship something else. And pray that they would hear God standing at the door of their heart, knocking. Saying, this used to be my home. There used to be fellowship here. There used to be closeness here. There used to be a relationship here. But you've pushed that off. Pray that they would answer that door as God is knocking. That there might be repentance. So that that relationship might be restored. I'm going to give us some time of silence uh, for you to pray by yourself, to spend some time with God, and then in just a little bit, I will pray to close us out. Father God, we come before you now. Father God, confessing that there are times, there are areas, God, that if we're honest, we all struggle in some form with trusting you and trusting ourselves. So Father God, I pray that, that... we would be honest with ourselves and honest with you. And Father God, any area, God, that we might struggle with just the concept of self-sufficiency, of thinking that we got this handled on our own. Father God, remind us of our need, God. Remind us of who we are and who you are. Father God, if we have slipped into self-sufficiency in any area of our life, Father God, because you love us, God, we pray... God, we pray for reproval, Father God, because we want to be close to you. And we don't want anything to stand in the way of that. Father God, we pray for those that we know who, maybe they used to come to church here. Maybe they used to go to church somewhere else. Maybe they're family members or co-workers. And maybe there was a time when there was fruit in their life, but God, because of different things, they've moved far away from you. Father God, we pray for reconciliation, not with us and them, but with you and them. God, we pray for restoration of relationship. God, we pray for repentance. And Father God, that they might turn to You, trusting, God, that what You offer is far greater than anything the world can offer. God, ultimately we know that You know people's hearts, and so we don't want to question anyone's salvation if they claim Christ, God. We just want to live and pray for them uh, the way the Bible calls us to. And so, Father God, You know people's hearts. And so, Father, we just want to pray for repentance. And we just want to pray that those who have turned from You... um, Father God, that you would turn them back. Whatever that takes, whatever that looks like, that you would remind them of how needy we are for you. God, discipline is not fun. But God, there's always a good reason behind it. And that reason is your love. Father God, would you love us even when we'd rather have you not love us if discipline comes with it? Father God, love us more than we are worthy of. God, love us more than we deserve and love us more than we want. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.